0: You are listening to an Elftree Publishing podcast. Our elves have been hard at work in search for meaningful and compelling content, so we hope you enjoy this show. And now, for our future presentation. Enjoy. Featuring free-spirited conversation to help build a better future for generations to come. This is Elftree Publishing. Elftree Publishing.
1: That means that while we can address
2: issues on a global scale, the roles and interests of our membership are also changing. The rise of China and other economies fundamentally alters the global landscape.
3: They're in the Financial Times of London. They're at the CFR. They, they put out reports saying that a new order is forming, run by the UN and NATO, with shared power by what's left of the US, the European Union, and the Communist Chinese. And so they are bringing in the end of the dollar as the world reserve currency, and with it, a new digital world currency tied to your COVID passport and tied to your carbon passport. This is the official plan now being announced. That's where we are. You have lived to see the big banks take over.
1: Run. Run. Planet Earth,
4: about to be recycled. Your only chance To evacuate is to leave with us, is to leave with us.
0: From leaving behind the world of bioterrorism to off the grid and independent living, you're listening to Exit the Cult. Friday, everyone. I'm your host, Joe Morales, and you're listening to Exit the Cult, a podcast dedicated to exposing the lies of the mainstream media to help others wake up to the truth. Let's exit the cult together. It's October 22nd, 2021. Welcome to the show, you guys. Seriously, I want to thank everyone who's listened so far. We just hit our 207th download of the show. And I'm excited about that because I haven't done any advertising. I have an Instagram page, but I haven't really, you know, I haven't put any marketing into this show. I've just been kind of throwing them up there. And just by word of mouth and you guys sharing it with your friends, it's uh, starting to grow. So I want to thank you guys for doing that. And, you know, just, I feel the love. I feel the love. So I put together a pretty interesting show today. We've got lots of fun news, and we have lots of terrible news. I mean, let's be honest. We're in the middle of... COVID 19 hysteria. The COVIDians have officially taken over the world and are forcing this narrative down all of our throats, even though we know Crimson Contagion, Event 201, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Klaus Schwab with the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset Plan, the Rockefeller Doctrine talking about lockstep and how they would need a pandemic to basically get every single country on board with the same program. Even though there's all that information and literature out there that came out way before the pandemic, We are having to pretend it's like we're being forced to wear costumes and pretend we're in this real reality that is actually fabricated and it's just taken over our lives. So it's really hard to escape anything outside of this narrative where we're all just kind of looking at each other going, okay, people are still wearing masks. Lots of people have their first, second doses of the vaccine, whatever flavor they wanted. The FDA coming out saying, oh, now you can, even though they said you can't mix any boosters, now they're saying you can just mix whatever boosters you want. This whole thing has become nothing but a money grab, crushing small businesses, crushing the middle class, which whatever was left of that. And we're just in this new world order. Let's call it that because that's what, you know, all the elites are calling it, the new world order. We're in this world of tyranny that we cannot escape. We just have to continue to talk about it. And the only way you can avoid it is if you live in the middle of the fucking woods. And I don't, I live in Los Angeles. I'm about to get out of here, but it's just one of those things that it's just constantly on the plate. There's nothing we can do to escape it. So I'm gonna continuously talk about this topic until those who are responsible for unleashing this gain-of-function coronavirus Dr. Fauci, NIH, we're going to just have to keep talking about it until these people are held accountable because it is in my opinion, and I know I'm not a doctor, um, I'm a a person who likes to research, I'm a person who likes to read and listen to others who are professionals in their fields, who are whistleblowing, who are losing their jobs, who are being de-licensed because they're speaking out, because they have a soul that's telling them, hmm, I see something, I say something. And uh, the mainstream media wants to just point their finger and laugh and say, oh, you're a flat earther conspiracy theorist, cue an honor, even though they have no idea what the hell that even is. So we're going to keep calm and uh, we're going to discuss the inevitable. So let's get into our cult of the day the Moonies. Founded by the late Sun Young Moon. The Unification Church is classified as a new religious movement, and the same group is also referred to as the Moonies and labeled a cult. With a worldwide following of one to two million people, it is the largest active cult. That is, if it's a cult at all. Which again, let me just interject this, the COVIDians is the largest cult. Let's just, that's been established. We've got billions of people who believe in this COVID nonsense that, oh,
5: (laughs) you gotta take your vaccine so it saves grandma.
0: The categorization is hard to establish and pejorative as the nickname Moonies. But with its messianic leader, unorthodox views on male-female relationships, and its members' abdication of self-service of the collective, the unification church certainly ticks many of the boxes on the cult checklist. Whatever it's labeled... The Unification Church is undoubtedly an unusual religious phenomenon of the second half of the 20th century, becoming extremely wealthy and widespread, and its leader, Reverend Moon, wielded immense political and economic power. In the beginning. In South Korea in 1954, the Reverend Sun Myung Moon started a religious movement called the Holy Spirit Association of the Unification of World Christianity. It became better known as the Unification Church of the Unification Movement. Unification, unification, unificate. God damn it. And dubbed the Moonies. The term is actually one that the church has used at times, but when used by outsiders, it's usually considered disrespectful. Don't call us Moonies, even though we call ourselves Moonies. (laughs) Giggling in their robes. Born in North Korea, Moon's family converted from Confucianism to Christianity, joining the Presbyterian Church. Moon claimed that Jesus appeared to him in a vision, tasking Moon with bringing peace to the world. In the 1940s, shortly after he began preaching his message, he was arrested and accused of spying for South Korea. He was imprisoned for five years. Near the end of the Korean War, which was between 1950 and 53, he fled to South Korea and established his church based on a mix of Confucian and Christian beliefs. He published his exposition of the divine principle a reinterpretation of the bible that established the main goals of what has been called the unification movement since the 1990s mass weddings and other quirks moon did not believe in the idea of romantic love but did claim that god intended that jesus a second adam would get married this perfect union would undo the damage from adam and eve's original sin because of jesus's crucifixion a third adam was needed Members of the church regard Moon as the third Adam, and he, along with his second wife, Hak Jahan, are the true parents. Married couples and their families within the church are considered the true children. Moon left his first wife, who was pregnant, so he could form the church. Hak Jahan was a second wife. He was 40, and get this, she was 17 when they married. Big surprise. Because of Moon's rejection of romantic love, marriages are arranged and performed as mass rituals called the Holy Marriage Blessing Ceremony. During the ritual, couples are removed from man's sinful lineage to become part of God's. In 1982, Moon conducted a blessing ceremony in Madison Square Garden for 2,000 couples. The largest blessing ceremony Moon presided over occurred in 2009 when 30,000 couples were blessed at Seoul's Olympic Stadium. The individuals participating in the ceremony all wore similar clothing. Though referred to as mass weddings, the blessing ceremonies often are not weddings in the legal sense. The couples who have been matched by the church may get married before or after the blessing ceremony following the requirements of the country's government. Newlywed couples are to refrain from sex for 40 days. Then they are to consummate their marriage during a three-day ritual. The couple is instructed to use sexual positions dictated by Moon. Okay, the missionary. Mm, uh, the doggy style. Mm, do the Eiffel Tower. Whatever, sorry. Recruitment tactics. In 1959, Moon sent missionaries to the U.S. and gained a following in the San Francisco Bay Area with a membership of about 500 by 1971. By 1973, all 50 states had a presence. Unification Church missionaries would embark on world tours and engage in a practice called love bombing, targeting lonely young people, making them feel included in a community. Some of those targeted would end up rejecting their own families and giving their possessions to the church. Stephen Hassan was one of those college students who joined the Moonies. He later revealed details of his experience. He said that three young women approached him while he ate lunch and lured him in by talking of making the world a better place. Hassan, who would later found the anti-cult watchdog group Freedom of Mind Resource Center, wrote in The Guardian, quote, little did I know within a few weeks, I would be told to drop out of school, donate my bank account, look at Moon as my true parent and believe my parents were Satan. I didn't even believe in Satan until I met the group, end quote. You know, guys, this is so on par with so many religions where they require you to just separate from your family, which I think is absolutely horrid. They require you to give over all of your banking information, which means every bit of labor that you do, how you're making your money, they are going to essentially take control of that. That's a cult. The big church is big business. Over time, as Moon's followers increased and fundraised, Moon became one of the wealthiest religious leaders in the world, and his empire included the conservative Washington Times newspaper. In the 70s and 80s, the church created a multi-billion dollar business empire. The Unification Church has spawned groups and associations that advance education and human rights, has purchased sports teams, has founded educational institutions, and owns valuable real estate. The number of separate owned entities or sub-entities certainly reaches into the hundreds, if not more. The Freedom of Mind Resource Center touts a 71-page document listing entities associated with the church. Political Connections Moon was staunchly anti-communist and supported the reunification of Korea. His anti-communist stance aligned the church with conservatism in the U.S. and abroad. In 1974, Moon organized pray-ins in support of President Richard Nixon as he was being pressured to resign over the Watergate scandal. Their motto during these pray-ins was forgive, love, and, of course, you guys, unite. Nixon publicly thanked Moon, which brought attention to the church. Funerals. Prior to the death of Moon's son, Hung Jin, members were buried in traditional Christian funerals. After his death in 1984, a new format was put into practice, the Sangwa. This ceremony was divided into three parts, prayer services for those closest to the deceased, a public ceremony featuring songs and testimonials, and finally, the burial service. At this final service, participants wear light-colored clothing, the body is dressed in his or her holy robe and buried with a copy of the Divine Principle. A unification flag is draped over the coffin. Moon himself died in 2012 at age 92. Well, there you go. It's not really one of those cults that kind of shocks you. They're not one of those blood-drinking, well, not that I know of, uh, blood-drinking, ritual-sacrificing, mass-suicide type of cults. But it's just as insidious because it's just like every other cult in church that demands your allegiance by separating yourself from your family, giving over all of your finances. If you're doing these kinds of things with an organization, you are in a cult. You are listening, listening to Exit, to Exit the, the Cult, cult. Only, only on Elf Tree Publishing. Publishing. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. 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 Enjoy, enjoy, hey, way, enjoy, way, enjoy, dalai, enjoy. enjoy, hey, you, enjoy, enjoy, hey, <Stop.ều>: hey, <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. you, yeah, you, enjoy, yes, you, enjoy. From Pitchfork Magazine, Radiohead's discography is now on Bandcamp. All nine of the band's studio albums, a live collection, a remix album, reissues, and more are now available on Bandcamp. Fans can listen to or purchase all nine of the band's studio albums, the 2001 live album, I Might Be Wrong, the King of Limbs remix album, 2007's In Rainbows Disc 2, and the reissues, OK Computer, OK Not OK, 1997, 2017, and Kid a Radiohead have had a complicated relationship with streaming services. Back in 2013, the band pulled their music from Spotify, a platform that Tom York called, quote, the last desperate fart of a dying corpse, end quote. The music eventually returned to Spotify, and Radiohead have since added various rarities to Spotify, Apple Music, and other digital streaming platforms. Radiohead also launched their own online archive, the Radiohead Public Library, in 2020. Kid A Amnesia is Radiohead's new box set featuring Kid A Amnesiac and an album of previously unreleased material. So far, the band has unearthed If You Say the Word, which is the song you're listening to, from the collection, which is out in full on November 5th. From the Los Angeles Times, country musician Travis Tritt explains why he canceled shows over COVID-19 mandates. Country musician Travis Tritt will no longer tour in venues that have vaccine mandates or push unreasonable COVID-19 testing requirements. The Here's a Quarter Call Someone Who Cares singer announced this week the cancellation of four stops on his fall tour because he feels the venues discriminate against concertgoers. Appearing Tuesday on Fox News' Tucker Carlson Tonight, the musician told the polarizing host, who himself has called COVID-19 a hoax and a scam, that he was turned off to perform at the venues after fans were turned away for being unvaccinated or untested. Tritt said he felt compelled to speak up for those fans and railed against the varying mandates put in place by venues and local authorities. Quote, I feel like I had to stand up for freedom, freedom for all of those people to be able to go out and do what they enjoy doing and enjoy a concert without being harassed.
2: We've done about 75 shows so far this year all over the country, Tucker. And uh, in spite of the fact that some people would try to label these as being quote unquote super spreaders, the actual uh, numbers don't reflect that at all. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. In most of these areas, we've seen the Uh, COVID numbers actually dropped dramatically over the last few weeks and months. And so it came as quite a a shock to me and and a lot of my fans when after the first week of October, during the first week of October, uh, a lot of these shows had restrictions placed on them, not by the state, not by the local city government, not by the local health department, municipalities, but by the actual promoters slash venue owners. Yes. Uh, and there was nothing that justified it. And so I, I started getting a ton of messages from fans who were basically not warned about these these mandates or restrictions ahead of time, showed up at the gate uh, and were turned away and uh, were not even offered refunds. They were offered credits to a upcoming show that had to be used within the next 12 months or else they lose their money for tickets. And it was just heartbreaking to me. These, these people have been shut out from getting a chance to go see concerts for uh, over a year and they're finally getting a chance to do that again and now they're being turned away for, for some Unexplained reason. So this is not about this is not about following the science or trying to look out for the safety of uh, of, of the people there. This is about something else. This is trying to divide people. That's right. This is trying to shame people. This is trying to basically discriminate against people that they don't feel are uh, clean enough to be a part of enjoying a concert like that. You know, I come from a uh, hardworking, middle-class family, and I have been extremely blessed, I came from nothing, to have a wonderful, wonderful career that has lasted for over 35 years in this business. And to see people that I know, I know these people, these are hardworking Americans, that just want to take care of their families, put food on the table for their families, put a roof over their head, and occasionally go out and and experience a, a concert, you know, enjoy themselves, forget about all their troubles for a little while. And to be able to enjoy all of those different things, that's that's something that I just I felt like I had to stand up for. Freedom. Freedom for all of those people to be able to go out and do what they enjoy doing and enjoy a concert without being harassed.
0: He said his team had not been aware of the restrictions when they booked his fall solo tour, so they canceled the shows as they became aware. He joins fellow musician Eric Clapton and comedian Jim Brewer in raising concerns about vaccine mandates. Speaking of Jim Brewer, here's some funny shit he posted. Talk to
3: you about facts. Science. No, are the
2: facts.
0: That's all I see when they talk like that. No, this is real. It's the facts because I researched it. <laughs> it's like a little parakeet just waiting for the news to come on. Walking in. Her- ah! Ah!
1: <laughs>
2: and then the news comes on. Ah!
1: Ah! 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 Dr. Fauci's on. Dr. Fauci's on.
5: Two mass, three mass, three mass, two mass. Ah, uh, vaccine, vaccine, vaccine.
0: Someone's got to put them back in the birdcage. Jeez. From HuffPost.com, Reagan shooter John Hinckley Jr. shares original country songs on Spotify. John Hinckley Jr., who attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan in 1981, is now trying to make his name as a country music singer. Hinkley has been posting his original songs on YouTube for the past 10 months, but joined Spotify just this past week, a fact he noted on Twitter, which he also just joined. Hello, everybody! This is the real John Hinkley. I'm now a singer-songwriter. I have 10 original songs on Spotify and the other streaming sites. Check them out. Also, check out my YouTube channel. Some of the titles, which are also on Apple Music and other streaming platforms, include We Are Drifting on the Sea, The Majesty of Love, and Roses and Laces. Most are just Hinckley and his guitar, but We Have Got That Chemistry was recorded with a full band. Although he doesn't have the vocal chops of Merle Haggard or the songwriting prowess of Hank Williams, the songs are well-constructed and his voice sounds similar to that of the late alternative singer-songwriter Daniel Johnston. None of the songs mention Hinckley's shooting of Reagan, which hit... <laughs> <laughs> what if it was a full album about <laughs> his preparations to kill Reagan, polishing his gun, you know? Okay. None of the songs mention Hinckley's shooting of Reagan, which hit the then-president in the lung and wounded three other people, including press secretary James Brady, who was partially paralyzed and ultimately died from the wound 33 years later. Ooh, the magical 33 Illuminati number. His 2014 death was ruled a homicide, but Hinckley was not charged. Hinkley was found not guilty by reason of insanity in 1982 after arguing he was mentally ill and obsessed with the movie Taxi Driver and actor Jodie Foster, whom he had stalked. Hinckley was held in psychiatric detention until 2016 when he was released to the care of his mother in Virginia, subject to court-imposed restrictions. Those restrictions were lifted this September after a federal judge found he had, quote, no symptoms of active mental illness, no violent behavior, and no interest in weapons since 1983, end quote. How interesting. How interesting. You can uh, attempt to kill a president and then also become a country star if you let enough time pass. As of today, John Hinckley has 22.4 thousand subscribers on YouTube. More than me. More than me.
6: Hello, everybody. I'd just like to say that I now have 10 songs of mine that are on Spotify and the other streaming channels. If you want to check out my songs, I have 10 songs on Spotify, iTunes, and the other streaming sites. So check them out. They're, they're studio-quality recordings and I think you'll really like them. I also have. I'm also on Twitter now. If you go to @JohnHinkley20 on Twitter, you'll find me. @JohnHinkley20 on Twitter, you'll find me. So check out my songs on Spotify and the other sites, and check me out on Twitter too. Thank you, bye bye.
0: I don't want to be judgy judgertons or anything, but that YouTube album announcement sounded a little mental, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, I'm not trying to be a dick. I can just imagine while he's working with his producer in the studio, the producer just keeps looking over his shoulder like, this motherfucker better not kill me. This motherfucker better not pull any punches. But speaking of shooting people, Alec Baldwin fired prop gun that kills cinematographer Helena Hutchins. He injured the director as well. From Variety, Alec Baldwin fired a prop gun on a set in New Mexico on Thursday, accidentally killing cinematographer Helena Hutchins and wounding director Joel Souza. The incident occurred on the set of Rust, an independent feature that was filming at the Bonanza Creek Ranch, a popular production location south of Santa Fe. Hutchins, 42, was transported by helicopter to University of New Mexico Hospital in Albuquerque, where she died. Sousa, 48, was taken by ambulance to Christus St. Vincent Regional Medical Center in Santa Fe, where he was receiving emergency care. That's crazy, you guys. Alec Baldwin kills his cinematographer and shoots his director. I believe this was a film that he was producing and acting in as well. Man, that is just insane. I mean, obviously, this kind of mirrors the tragic death of Brandon Lee, who was shot and killed on set. Back in, what, 93, when he was filming The Crow? Crazy. How... I just don't understand how a prop gun is able to kill a human being on set. Like, it's not a prop gun if it can kill someone. That's not a prop gun. I don't get it. I'm sure there's gonna be more to it. And, um... Rest in peace to Helena. Hopefully, Joel Souza recovers quickly. But that's just an all-around tragedy. So, the movie Rust that they were filming, here's the weird, um synopsis of what the movie is about. It's a 13-year-old boy left to fend for himself and his younger brother following the death of their parents in 1880s Kansas. Goes on the run with his long estranged grandfather after he's sentenced to hang for the accidental killing of a local rancher. Crazy! So thoughts to everybody involved in this tragic incident. That is wild, wild, wild. I'm a big Alec Baldwin fan, even though I'm not a big fan of his political opinions. He's a little bit Deranged when it comes to his politics, but that's neither here nor there. So, thoughts to everybody from the set of Rust. We hope you guys get through this with love. And man, yeah, it's a sad one. From goodnewsnetwork.org, diver finds 900 year old sword wielded in the Crusades off the coast of ancient Israeli town. A man in Israel noticed the unmistakable shape of a sword during a recreational dive and it turned out to be a 900-year-old relic from the Crusades. (laughs) Cha-ching! Encrusted with shells and marine life, it's not clear if the sword was from the Muslim or European side, but it's now in possession of the Israeli Antiquity Authority for further study. Some of the most important tools and icons of mankind have similar shapes. In abstract, a sword, a pickaxe, a cross, or an axe all look very similar, and so even when it was so entirely reclaimed by the sea as to be invisible in color... Shlomi Katzin, a resident of the town of Atlit, had no trouble spotting the sword and a number of other nearby artifacts off the Carmel Coast. So you can find treasures in the ocean. That's kind of cool.
4: Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey. If I were the devil... If I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the so i set about however necessary to take over the United States. President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do, Do, Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me. Our Father until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flame. The president of the United States is racist. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect the discipline emotions just let like those run wild. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money if I were the devil I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious I would caution against extremes
3: I'm here to warn people you keep telling me to shut up this isn't a game
4: in hard work in patriotism in moral conduct I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing.
0: Welcome back to Exit the Cult from Zero Hedge. NIH admits funding gain-of-function COVID experiments gives EcoHealth five days to report data. A top NIH official admitted in a Wednesday letter that the U.S. funded so-called gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China, and that the U.S. nonprofit which conducted it, EcoHealth Alliance, led by the controversial Peter Dezak, failed to report that they had created a chimeric bat coronavirus which could infect humans. In a letter addressed to Representative James Comer, he's a Republican of Kentucky, NIH Principal Deputy Director Lawrence A. Tabak cites a limited experiment to determine whether spike proteins from naturally occurring bat coronaviruses circulating in China were capable of binding to the human ACE2 receptor and a mouse model. According to a letter, humanized mice infected with the modified bat virus became sicker than those exposed to an unmodified version of the same bat coronavirus. DAZAC failed to report this finding and has been given five days to submit any and all unpublished data from the experiments and work conducted under the NIH grant. While evidence of this research has been pointed to in published studies, the FOIA release provides a key piece to the puzzle which sheds new light on what was going on. Quote, This is a roadmap to the high-risk research that could have led to the current pandemic, said Gary Ruskin, executive director of U.S. Right to Know, a group that has been investigating the origins of COVID-19. We also learned in September that 18 months before the pandemic, DAZAC applied for a grant to release enhanced airborne coronaviruses into the wild in an effort to inoculate them against diseases that could have otherwise jumped to humans, according to The Telegraph. DAZAC hoped to use genetic engineering to cobble human-specific cleavage sites onto bat COVID, which would make it easier for the virus to enter human cells. (laughs) Cleavage sites. And included plans to commingle high-risk natural coronaviruses strains with more infectious, yet less deadly versions. His BAT team of researchers included Dr. Shi Xi Zingli from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as well as U.S. researchers from the University of North Carolina and the U.S. Geological Survey National Wildlife Health Center. DARPA refused the contract, saying, quote, "...it is clear that the proposed project led by Peter Dezak could have put local communities at risk," end quote. While warning that Dezak hadn't fully considered the dangers involved in enhancing the virus via gain-of-function research, or by releasing a vaccine into the air. Angus Delglish, professor of oncology at St. George's University of London, who struggled to get work published showing that the Wuhan Institute of Virology had been carrying out gain-of-function work for years before the pandemic, said the research may have gone ahead even without the funding. Quote, This is clearly a gain-of-function, engineering the cleavage site and polishing the new viruses to enhance human cell infectability in more than one cell line he says. In short, a massive drop of receipts proved that Fauci and his boss, Francis Collins, lied. The NIH itself has finally acknowledged funding gain-of-function research. Dun-dun-dun! Will Fauci pay the price for lying to Rand Paul? We'll find out after these messages.
1: Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world can emerge, a new era. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations, a new world order, a world with the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be. It is a big idea. A new world order. A world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order. And that's why I wanted to speak to you today about the new world taking shape around us. About the prospects for a new world order now within our reach. There's a need for a new world order. But it has different
4: characteristics in different parts of
2: the- of the, world. the affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. It's about the future of Europe and a new world order. After 1989, President Bush kept saying, and it's a phrase that I often use myself, that we needed a new
4: world order. India and China are clearly becoming part of our new order. So, in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, a new world is emerging. It is a new world order. I think its task will be to develop an overall strategy for America. In this period, when really a new world order can be created, it's a great opportunity. It isn't just
3: a crisis. Good
4: evening, everybody. President Obama and British Prime Minister Gordon today calling for a new world order to tackle our global
1: economic crisis. And the president outlined his vision of a new world order in which the U.S. would participate fully. We've got to give them a stake in creating the kind of uh, uh, world order that I think all of us would like to see. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations when we are successful. And we will be. When we are successful. And we will be. When When we are successful. And we will be a real chance we have a real chance at this new world
0: order. And we will be freaks. So I have from band video, the Brown report. It's about globalists being a corporatic invisible government that lingers in the hallways of the Bilderberg and Davos wire polling for the agendas written over by the United Nations, the world economic forum and the world health organization. They have goals that have been with us for decades. At the dark heart of their motivation is a cold anti-human, anti-freedom, anti-family, and anti-American nihilistic, psychotic obsession. All they needed was the perfect tool to engineer and fine-tune society, and along came artificial intelligence to edit all morality, ethics, truth, and the future of the human race. The globalists realize that they don't have total control over the internet. Artificial intelligence is the new battleground. And we're all facing it now. Just ask any successful YouTuber that had their channel cut because of uh, misinformation. Or for discussing topics or anything that could be considered hate speech. AI is deciding what hate speech is. AI isn't a fucking human being.
4: Your dream, whatever sort of nightmare it is, has no chance, Drax. No doubt you have realized the splendor of my conception. First, a necklace of death about the Earth. 50 globes, each releasing its nerve gas over a designated area, each capable of killing 100 million people. The human race, as you know it, will cease to exist.
3: Art imitates life, so why in so many movies with villains or sci-fi films or dystopic films does the villain brag about what they do? Because that happens in history.
6: Well, there's no good feeling that comes on something like this saying, I told you so. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a
3: war. My book of the fourth industrial revolution is that the innovations we are seeing today in terms of artificial intelligence, uh, the Internet of Things, cloud computing advanced robotics, and many others, together constitute a new phase in human development, on par, or even exceeding, previous industrial revolutions in scale and impact. COVID-19, if anything, has accelerated this ongoing industrial revolution. It's not gonna disappear from the planet, which means as we get into next season, In my mind, it's inevitable that we will have a return of the virus or maybe it never even went away. They love to monologue about what they're planning very thinly veiled in front of you before they do it. The global private central banks of the world control big pharma, they control the defense establishment, they control energy, they control the media, they now control academia and they control most of the church. And now they want the family. Now they want you individually. Now they want your mind. And the Bretton Woods Agreement that was set up to make America the new British Empire at the end of World War II is coming to an end.
7: Since those 44 country delegations met at Bretton Woods, the IMF has grown and now we have 189 members, almost the entire world economy. That means that while we can address issues on a global scale, The roles and interests of our membership are also changing. The rise of China and other
0: economies fundamentally alters the global landscape.
7: They're in the Financial Times of London,
3: they're at the CFR, they they put out reports saying that a new order is forming, run by the UN and NATO, with shared power by what's left of the US, the European Union, and the Communist Chinese. And so they are bringing in the end of the dollar as the world reserve currency and with it a new digital world currency tied to your COVID passport and tied to your carbon passport. This is the official plan now being announced. And that's where we are. You have lived to see the big banks take over and they got the whole world through fraud. They got the whole world going back over 500 years ago in Europe with the Rothschilds and others would be goldsmiths and you'd keep your gold there so it wouldn't get robbed your rubies or diamonds or silver. And then you would come and you would give them one gold coin worth X, and they learned they would give you scripts saying you had one gold coin, but they learned they could loan out 10, 15, 20 times more paper, script, checks than what they really had. And with that, they leveraged it. And there was lots of families doing it. The Rothschilds, the most famous, the most powerful. They got so powerful, they married into British royalty 300 years ago. And then in 1815, at the Battle of Waterloo, Lord Wellington defeated in his British-Prussian pincer attack Napoleon Bonaparte, and he sent carrier pigeons to the coast on fast Corvette ships across to announce that morning that Lord Wellington had lost the war. And the British stock market plunged by 99%. Rothschild, of course, began selling right up front. Everybody panicked and began selling. Then they came in with the news. Oh, my God. Wellington has lost. British Army destroyed. British Empire has collapsed. Napoleon rules the earth. And then as soon as everybody started selling, he bought it all up. And now, 200-plus years later, that system rules the entire planet, except for Russia and a few other countries, controls China, and now is about to put you on a digital system through an iPhone and your computer that tracks and traces where you go, what you do, decides where you can go and what you can do, and decides what your child's going to be, and if your child will be allowed to have children, and you will be lesser than farm
0: animals. And it's true. We are being treated like cattle. So somebody reached out to Exit the Cult on Instagram, and they sent me this screenshot of someone's post, and it says this. I don't know how else to put this. I had my second dose of Pfizer two weeks ago, and I've become convinced there is something in these vaccines that cuts people off from the spirit. It's like my consciousness has been leashed, and life has turned the volume down real low. I had an intense spiritual awakening about two years ago triggered by Sykes, and it's like all the connection I gained has been erased. I think this is some kind of evil alien tech I'm not even joking, like Law of One Orion type shit, to stop us ascending, whatever that means. I can't describe the change in my awareness, I struggle to believe it myself, like my mode of operation has been changed. I'm lucky I'm even conscious of it, because I feel like most people aren't really in touch with spirit and wouldn't notice anything wrong. For me, this is hell. And I know some of you know what I'm talking about when I say I feel like I've betrayed my soul's mission. It's like there is no forgiveness for me. I failed and allowed myself to fail knowing something was wrong. I didn't have faith. Part of me thinks I did this on purpose because my connection was so painful, but nothing is worse than this. I'd rather be suffering. So people are feeling disconnected from their higher selves. That's interesting. I got this other message from a friend of mine, and this is her niece, who ended up posting a video after her adverse effects. Listen to this.
5: Hi, I'm Britt. This is me before I received the Moderna vaccine. Some of you might recognize me from my Instagram post where I started sticking metal objects to myself and thought it was funny until May 22nd. May 22, 2021. 911,
2: need please fire medical. I
5: think I need an ambulance. Okay, and what's the address of your emergency? Uh, what's going on? I I feel like I can't breathe and I'm
8: passing out. All right. I can't just, stop. I can't stop throwing up. And, okay. What? What is your phone number? All right. Stay on the line. I'm gonna get you to fire rescue. Okay. Okay.
5: My entire life changed within a matter of minutes. It wasn't just about sticking metal objects on my skin anymore thinking it was funny. I ended up in the hospital for 18 days, three separate times, 17 doctors, numerous tests. I was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre, pericarditis, Pott's syndrome, gastroparesis, meningitis, and many more complications, all as a result of the Moderna vaccines. I'm in so much pain today. I've been crying nonstop. I didn't realize that this condition comes with random pain. I'm sure a lot of you saw my daily post and my blogs on Instagram. I was showing all of you what was happening to me. Most were kind, but I was attacked, belittled, ridiculed, threatened the hospital brought security into my room to threaten me about posting. I didn't know what was happening to my body. I wanted answers just as much as you did. I was confused and in pain and hurting. The doctors at the hospital treated me with such disrespect and disregard and didn't call the neuro team until the fifth day on my third stay. 1,500 pages of medical records, and the only doctor willing to admit that it was from the Moderna was the neurologist who finally came in and recognized me. As the head nurse just walked in and said, you're the one that just got diagnosed with Ian Bray, however you say it, from the Moderna shot, right? He demanded that she report my injury to the VAERS system and the CDC. Finally. Finally, I was heard, and we will all be heard. After being treated with the IVIG to stop the progression of the Guillain-Barre, I was set free and allowed to go home, although I had no idea what the road ahead of me looked like, and I was absolutely terrified. Some of you may not know how bad it actually got. I couldn't walk at a certain point, and had paralysis from the waist down, had to learn to walk again. I've been put on so many different medications and none of the doctors talk to each other. So I decided for myself that enough was enough and I turned to an integrative medicine doctor in Tampa. I've been receiving weekly IVs, light therapy sessions daily. Meanwhile, I was receiving a lot of support on Instagram but also a lot of hate and it was absolutely terrifying the things people were saying to me and about me influencers who people look up to instagram themselves was saying i was a fake dismissing and blacking out videos of my own body and things that were really happening to me that i recorded myself people like me are real and there are a lot of us and we just want to be heard
0: everyone is sitting here telling us that we need to go get these vaccines we need to go and participate and all of this nonsense you need to have your, uh, your COVID pass to get into a bar and a restaurant, go to a music venue. Where do people think this is going? Most people that I know are so oblivious. And if I ever have like a conversation about this with most of my friends, they fucking cannot handle it. And it's really annoying because I'm sitting here going, you guys are like really smart people, right? You're a smart person. You can like sit there and debate and have a, have a conversation about this. The second you make them actually think about what is actually happening, they just kind of like fizzle out. Like the brain wiring just all of a sudden, like a robot, can't handle it. Are these vaccines affecting people's spirituality? Are they affecting people's overall cognitive ability to think? And I know you guys listening, if you've dealt with these same conversations, it's when someone gets so uncomfortable because they feel like the principal's listening in on their conversation, or they can't have a certain conversation because they may get in trouble. You're a a human being that has the right to think and question everything. You're not getting in trouble. It's okay to look to, to look like an idiot. It's okay to be wrong. But it's also fucking okay to be right. And what's happening in our world right now is wrong. It should not be happening. And if we're talking about the NIH funding gain of function and they created this shit in a lab and obviously what was released, the OG alpha variant of this thing, it was very low risk to anyone's health besides a small ass fraction of our of our world. Very, very small. And oh yeah, we, we change up all of our attitude and behavior about the way we're gonna live our everyday lives. And that's not even we're not even talking about the hospital protocols, remdesivir, people's um, comorbidities, life expectancy. What about all that stuff? No big deal. I mean none of it makes sense. None of this makes sense. And so you want to have a conversation with someone about going, hey, you know, maybe Fauci's corrupt. Maybe the NIH is corrupt. Maybe the CDC is corrupt. Maybe World Health Organization's corrupt. Maybe the World Economic Forum. Maybe Bill and Melinda Gates. Maybe their foundation and the things that they're funneling through that uh, foundation. Maybe they're they're funding some corrupt things. Maybe they're literally all doing what they're saying they want to do which is essentially control the world through the vaccination programs. They want to depopulate the world because they think they're the harbingers of truth. They're the harbingers of knowing what's best for humanity. On one hand, they want to give you your, your antidote for truth. And on the other one, they're holding snakes that are going to bite you in the ass. These people are fucking evil. And we, we like live in this world pretending like this isn't a thing. Like, oh no, you just got to trust them. You just got to trust them because they, they they're looking out for me. And I know I say this a lot on these shows, but guys, I'm so annoyed. I'm so annoyed. Like this is literally rotting the brain of all these people I know. It's rotting the institutions. It's rotting out the establishments, restaurants, everywhere you go. It's, it's nothing but harassment. Wear a mask. Show us your vaccine status. It's like, get the fuck out of here. I just want to order some food. Shut the fuck up. Literally, I just want to tell people to shut the fuck up. And I know it sound like a dickhead, and maybe I am. But you know what? Anyone that's like, okay, and advocating for this kind of like tyranny, they need to go fuck themselves. The only reason I'm so pissed is because I'm dealing with this from the, from the opposite end. Like, I know a lot of people that listen to this show. You're probably not vaccinated. And if you are vaccinated... You're not dealing with what it feels like to not be vaccinated. All I'm getting is pressure, pure pressure, and then these weird looks, and literally looks from people who've done zero research on anything. And if they do research, they're just reading the mainstream news. They're just reading whatever they're told. And my whole thing on this show is I am sharing things from alternative media because it is the truth And the alternative media, you are not going to get that from the mainstream. They are done. They are done. There's five corporations that own all mainstream media. Five. They're all on the same page together. They're a part of this great reset program. It's just, it is what it is. It's a sad, hard pill to swallow. But man, swallow that motherfucker. Because when you do, you'll see for the first time. So this week, ex-Secretary of State Colin Powell, he died from complications of COVID, and he was jabbed twice. Interesting, huh? Nothing to see here. But to be fair, he was 84. And uh, I think life expectancy is 78. So there's that. So here is the former CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield. He was the CDC director at the beginning of the pandemic last year. And uh, here's what he had to say about this.
6: Uh, I hear a lot of times people feel it's a rare event that fully vaccinated people may die. I happen to be the senior advisor to Governor Hogan in the state of Maryland. Uh, In the last six to eight weeks, uh, more than 40% of the people that died in Maryland were fully vaccinated.
0: And that's just in Maryland. That's not even accounting for other areas of the world and other states, other countries. So 40% percent—they were double vaccinated. Interesting, right? but it's safe and effective. Yeah, these vaccines have been out for less than a year.
8: And the Honolulu Police Department provided an update on its newest tool, a robot dog. Spot, the $150,000 robot purchased earlier this year, is used to screen individuals at homeless sites on Oahu. HPD says since the start of the pandemic, the sites have taken in more than 1,700 homeless individuals and have had only 14 positive COVID cases. They believe the mitigation procedures put in place and other technologies such as Spot, have helped keep the numbers down.
5: Having the ability to deploy something that
1: can do all the interaction with someone on a mobile mobile platform and take the possibility of transmission out of the equation, for me, I really don't think that um, over the long term, $150,000 is a waste.
8: Spot is able to take a person's temperature from seven feet away in a fraction of a second. It also has two-way communication capability and can deliver PPE, food, and water to someone who does test positive for COVID.
0: Yeah, not dystopian at all. Welcome back to Exit the Colt. They're putting robots out on the streets from Boston Dynamics out in Honolulu. And it begins, you guys. They're putting robots out on the streets to read people's temperatures, bring them some food, and the, the, what's the name? Spot? They're trying to, to program the public to accept this. Putting a robot out, out onto the street like this, there should be a massive outcry. It's, it's, where does this go? Where does this lead, you guys? I can tell you right now. Let's let's roll the song right now. Let's roll that song. You hear it? You hear it? Mmm, take it in. Take it in. Mmm, get down! You better listen to me Have you seen this boy? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna be in that kind of a world We've got these uh, T-1000s And these fucking Terminators running around Just destroying everyone Who's not
5: vaccinated
0: Yeah Yeah, that's where it's going That's where it's going It's Armageddon we're, It's here It's here So here's Congressman Louis Gomert asking Merrick Garland whether or not the FBI was involved in the One Six insurrection.
2: But regarding the men who broke the glass in the two doors there at the speaker's lobby, when the two Capitol Police been standing there, moved to the side to allow them access, uh, were any of those people who broke? Glass and did damage to those doors. Working for the FBI or other federal law enforcement
1: entities. I, uh, and this is an ongoing criminal investigation, and I'm really not at liberty to discuss. There have been some filings um, um, of uh, in a nature of discovery, which has been provided to the defendants. Uh, but I, uh, other than that, I can't uh, discuss this now.
3: Well. We've
2: seen some of those filings that talk about persons one through twenty-something. Were those persons one designated by number? Were those people that were employed by the FBI or federal uh, entities, or were they confidential informants?
1: Again, I I don't um, know those specifics, but I do not believe that any of the people you're mentioning um, charged in the indictment uh, were either one.
0: Yeah, because most of the people that were charged were old ladies and people that were just taking a tour through the Capitol on that day. They talk about the insurrection like it was the the worst thing that ever happened. Now I will say this: the people who broke into like the offices and like were defecating on the floor, whatever the fuck that what happened, stealing computers, all that stuff. Those people should be prosecuted for those for their actions on that. But they're talking about this like this was an insurrection. What is an insurrection? What is an insurrection? Because what I saw on one six was a bunch of people walking in to the Capitol, let into the Capitol. Yes. Broken windows. But there was a lot of videos where people were like, Hey, these are, these are like cops dressed in street clothes who are breaking these windows open and then walking away from them just casually when, when they were being confronted move. They're putting their fist up and basically like, like a fucking soldier threatening people to get away from them. I don't know. To me, it's, if this was an insurrection, then what a pathetic one because uh, no one stormed the building with weapons. I mean, it was completely an unarmed insurrection. What is this, the, the, the medieval times? Pickaxes and shovels? Ridiculous. I mean, the media was reporting it like it was the worst thing that's ever happened. Worse than 9-11. Outrageous. I am curious to find out, though, When all is said and done, if the investigation is legit anymore, I mean, who knows? Corruption is so bad. You know, you're asking essentially the DOJ, which is corrupt, to investigate another corrupt organization that works along with the DOJ. Yeah. Okay. We'll see what happens. So let's take a little trip to Zorro Ranch. From the sun, eyes wide open, Epstein's Zorro Ranch had computer rooms the size of houses to spy on guests, including Prince Andrew. Jeffrey Epstein's notorious Zorro Ranch had three computer rooms the size of houses to spy on famous guests, including Prince Andrew, one of the pedophiles victims has claimed. Former employee Maria Farmer alleges footage would include the Duke of York's alleged seven-day stay at Epstein's 33,339-square-foot desert estate in New Mexico in 2000. Man, we always mention the the number 33. 33 33,000 square feet. You don't think he had this house built exactly to that spec? I don't know. I don't even know the details behind the house and who built it, but that's a little strange. Epstein reportedly had the warped idea of using the ranch for inseminating women with his sperm with the aim of creating a master race. Local radio station owner Eddie Aragon has obtained architect plans, which date back to 1998, five years after Epstein purchased the property. The plans obtained by The Sun reveal a huge underground floor around 8,000 square feet in size, which includes exercise, massage, and jacuzzi rooms later transformed into a pool area. They also show three unusually large mechanical rooms on this lower floor. Farmer claims the rooms, usually for a boiler or electrics, were packed with Epstein and alleged accomplice Ghislaine Maxwell's computers and video equipment for his spying network. She told The Sun, quote, All of Epstein's residences had these mechanical rooms and tunnel systems. I know this because Epstein told me. These rooms were enormous, bigger than houses. I have no idea why anyone needs so many computers in one room. There were pinhole cameras to record everything on every estate. The cameras were ubiquitous. You couldn't see them unless they were pointed out to you. End quote. Epstein had many guests at his ranch over the years, including Prince Andrew, who allegedly vacationed there with his neurosurgeon friend Dr. Melanie Walker whom former Zorro housekeeper Deidre Stratton described as, quote, beautiful, young, and brilliant, end quote. Stratton previously claimed she was tasked with looking after the royal and his guests, who asked her for tea, which would make him horny, claiming, quote, she asked me to find one that would make him more horny that he hadn't been interested in her. I'm guessing because she understood her job was to entertain him, end quote. Do you have any tea that'll make him horny? find out where I can buy some tea to make me horny. The son previously reached out to Walker, who has never commented on her relationship with the Duke. The Duke also allegedly spent two days alone at Epstein's ranch in 2001 with the billionaire pedophile sex slave Virginia Roberts, court documents claimed. The Duke's Secret Stay, a manuscript written by Miss Roberts, who was 17 or 18 at the time, says he had a really good time and that she gave him erotic massages, later being paid close to $1,000 by Epstein. Farmer, 51, worked as the in-house artist and receptionist at Epstein's New York home in 1996 before being transferred to businessman Les Wexner's 23-room, 10,600-square-foot estate in New Albany, Ohio, where she claims to have been abused by Epstein and Maxwell. In January, a shareholder lawsuit was filed against Wexner, who's 84, and senior leadership at his old clothing company, L Brands, which states Wexner and wife Abigail let Epstein quote, use their home for liaisons with victims, end quote. Wexner has never been criminally accused of involvement in Epstein's sex crimes and insists that he was duped by him and ended their relationship after the predator's first arrest in 2007 on charges of soliciting a minor for prostitution. Quote, being taken advantage of by someone who was so sick, so cunning, so depraved is something that I'm embarrassed that I was even close to, says Wexner. Aragon, who owns Albuquerque radio station Rock of Talk, spoke to Azuro's architect and former IT contractor, who worked on Epstein's internet communications and security from 1999 to 2007, and provided inside photos. He was told a six-foot naked portrait of Ghislaine Maxwell with a gold dagger in her hand had been put in the basement elevator hallway and was the first thing that any of their guests, including victims, would see on their way down to the basement, massage, and pool areas. Aragon says... Quote, the architect called into my radio show and had been sitting on these plans for some time. These plans give us a firmer idea of what was going on at the ranch. Although the house is for sale, the brokers won't talk to you about the ranch without you being a qualified party, which means you have to be someone with money who can prove they can buy it in cash. That's the only way to view the place. All of that in the basement feels more like a dungeon with the nebulous mechanical rooms. A six-foot-by-six-foot six oversized portrait of Ghislaine Maxwell with her legs fully spread, completely naked, and a golden dagger in her right hand was dead center in the elevator hall of the basement. I think that was used to intimidate the young women who were there alone and isolated. The contractor who supplied the photograph stated that he can't ever get the image out of his mind, and it is one of the most bizarre things that he's ever seen, end quote. The 59-year-old British socialite will face six charges at her trial, including sex trafficking, conspiracy, and the sex trafficking of a minor. She has been in prison for 471 days in New York after being arrested in July 2020. Zorro Ranch, which has stood eerily empty since Epstein's death, only being looked after by a few on-site staff, is now on the market for $27.5 million. Epstein's master bedroom, which takes over virtually the whole of the second floor, and on the same level, there were two comparatively tiny in-suite bedrooms and a further staff room on the first floor. As Aragon points out, it's understandable why underage victims have complained about feeling terrified and trapped. Quote, If you have 33,000 square feet of space, you would have, say, 12 bedrooms, especially when you hear about Jeffrey Epstein talk about a baby-making ranch. What is strange is that this wasn't built for that purpose. Every room from a closet to a toilet to a bathroom on the second floor seems to have a vestibule. And a vestibule is basically like a small hallway between rooms. Were these holding areas? Do the women bathe, then dress, and get held up in the vestibule before they visit Epstein? The maze of rooms, doors, vestibules, waiting areas, and doors, there's no doubt, were used to maximize effect to trap and contain the victims until they were needed for Epstein's rituals. There appears to be no escape. Can you imagine how that would feel for young teenage girls? They must have felt so hopeless and vulnerable. End quote. Farmer's younger sister, Annie, was allegedly introduced reluctantly by her sister to an eager Maxwell and Epstein, who coerced Annie to visit Zorro alone and sexually assaulted her at the age of 16. She sued Maxwell and Epstein's estate in November 2019 with the lawsuit stating, quote, She was alone with Epstein and Maxwell. She had no way to access a phone or other method of communication without Epstein or Maxwell knowing. She had no way of leaving. Annie knew she had no way of escaping Epstein's massive estate and attempted to escape by saying she needed to use the restroom She was in shock and frightened by what she was experiencing She feared for her safety knowing she was alone in Epstein's ranch in another state And that Maxwell and Epstein were closely monitoring her activity Creepy You're listening to Exit the Cult Only on Elf Tree Publishing Now, enjoy the rest of the show, useless eaters I'm Bill Gates. So, speaking of Epstein, one of his good buddies, Bill Gates, was questioned on PBS by Judy Woodruff about his relationship with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, he didn't seem too prepared to talk about it. So here is communications professor Alex Lyons breaking down Bill Gates's body language. It's absolutely fascinating. The dude is squirming like a worm. I'm going
7: to react to your recent controversial interview with Bill Gates on PBS. It was supposed to be about vaccines, but she asked Gates about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. My feedback is not a criticism of Gates as a person. I'm just going to look at his specific behaviors in this interview for educational purposes to see what makes his communication come off as hinky. That's a word that police officers and other people use to describe somebody who's acting nervous, suspicious, but it's difficult to articulate exactly why something seems off. We're going to consider Gates's past behavior as a baseline to look at his answers about Epstein. I already watched his answers about vaccines from earlier in the interview to see how he would normally act, and this clip starts 80% of the way into the conversation when Judy Woodruff changes the topic and starts asking questions about Epstein
8: the same uh, the same focus I also want to ask you about something else in the public arena it was reported at that time uh, that you had a number of meetings with Jeffrey Epstein who when you met him 10 years ago he was convicted of soliciting prostitution from minors what did you know about him when you were meeting with him as you've said yourself uh, in the hopes of raising money
6: Uh, you know I had dinners with him. Uh, I regret doing that. He had relationships with uh, people he said, you know, would give to global health, which is an interest I have, you know, not nearly enough philanthropy goes in that direction. Uh, You know, those meetings were were a mistake. They didn't result in uh, what he purported and I cut them off. You know, that goes back a long time ago now. Uh, There's You know, so there's nothing new on that.
7: It was reported. First, he didn't answer the question. She asked him about what he knew about Epstein when they first met. He replied, I had dinners with him. His answer is misaligned, and that's the first sign of trouble. He's also giving off some very distracting body language. He's shifting in his chair. He's wringing his hands and playing with his fingers. His eyes and his head are all over the place. Our baseline showed us that he did some of these behaviors here and there in his previous answers. And now he's doing a whole collection of them all at once. And that uptick shows that something has changed. That also shows a misalignment between his words and his nonverbal cues. So if we were playing poker with Bill Gates, we'd say he's giving off tells. And in the field of communication, we call this misalignment nonverbal leakage. There's something more going on in his mind than what his words are saying. He looks bottled up, as if he's restraining himself from saying more. We then have two layers of misalignment. Woodruff's question and his answer misalign, and his own words and nonverbal cues misalign. So that's a double dose of hinky behavior. We also see a sharp increase in his disfluency. His baseline answers were averaging a filler word every 6.7 seconds. That's already a lot. His top two fillers are ah and you know. During his Epstein answers, though, he used a filler every 2.6 seconds. That's a huge increase. He's also repeating words and restarting more frequently. He said those meetings were, were a mistake. There's, you know, so there's nothing new on that and he's pausing frequently in the middle of sentences to search for words instead of pausing at the end. Those disfluencies are all signs of conversational trouble. It's like his mind is the inside of a maraca, and he's fighting to keep it organized.
8: Meet with him over several years, um, and that, in other words, a number of meetings. Um, What did you do when you found out about his background?
6: Well, you know, I've said I regretted having those dinners, uh, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that.
7: He's obviously shaking his head before the question is done. He's agitated. More importantly, he didn't answer this question either. He just repeated the same answer he already gave. His replies are also almost exactly the same. He said, I had dinners with him. I regret doing that the first time. That's nine words. For Woodruff's next question, he said, I have said I regretted having those dinners. That's eight words. To the first question, he responded, there's so there's nothing new on that, seven words. To the next question, he said, there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that. That's eight words. This to me sounds exactly like the type of talking points that a lawyer prepared for him on a note card. This is not how transparent people talk, and it's not even how he talks in his earlier answers in the interview, he used that as a baseline. He used longer sentences and gave helpful details. He's also here repeating the use of the word dinner. That specific word sounds calculated to me. He might be doing what the communication researchers in crisis call minimization, to explain things in a way that make them seem less harmful. The statement, there's nothing new on that, also sounds like minimization to me. One way police interrogators establish if a suspect is telling the truth is to compare a suspect's answers with information that the police can verify in another way. So if a suspect is lying about or downplaying basic verifiable facts like where they were, they could be lying about even more important information that police have not yet verified. So the question is, does the word dinner accurately describe the various meetings that he had with epstein or is he minimizing now i'm not a detective but if there's verifiable information out there that you know that establishes that they were these were more than just dinners then post a comment below about that but even if we put aside the fact that he's just repeated his answer here let's talk about an important concept called quantity that's a conversational maxim a concept that says a normal conversation will flow well when people provide an adequate amount of information, quantity. It's a sign of conversational trouble when somebody gives too much or too little information for the situation. So I looked at all of his answers earlier, and his answers about Epstein are less than half the normal length. His first several answers in the interview provide a baseline of a 46 second average. His Epstein answers average just 21 seconds. He clammed up all of a sudden, and that's another reason he comes across as hinky.
8: Is there a lesson for you, for anyone else looking looking at this?
6: Well, he's dead, so uh, you know. In general, you always have to be careful. Uh, and you know, the you know, I'm I'm very proud of what we've done in philanthropy. Very proud of the work of the foundation. Uh, you know. That's, that's what I get up every day and focus on.
7: So she asks him, is there a lesson? And to me, this should have been a very easy question. But again, his answer is way off. He replied, well, he's dead. This breaks the conversational maxim of irrelevance. His answer does not logically correspond to what she asked him. And that's why this moment is the weirdest one in the interview. As the questions get easier, his answers get less connected. He then pivots to his work with the Gates Foundation. And in crisis communication research, we call this technique bolstering. When companies and, and politicians get accused of wrongdoing, they often try to refocus the conversation on all of the good things they're doing to bolster their image. So he says, I'm a philanthropist, I'm very generous. Now, bolstering like this is not an admission of guilt, but he is using it as a way to change the subject instead of answering a very basic question that he was asked. So big picture, I don't know what really happened with Gates and Epstein. I'm not evaluating him as a person. But the way he handled these questions were really high on the hinky scale. And if you want to present yourself like a credible person, this interview is not an example of how to do that well.
0: So there you have it. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We had quite a few topics in there. I hope it wasn't uh, too much of a too much information. But that's what I do. I like to just pack these things like a Like a sandwich, you know? We got two slices of bread. We got the opening song in the beginning. We got the closing song at the end. And between that is all the goodness. You know what I'm saying? special thanks to jim brewer band.video john brown alex jones elftree publishing and all of our listeners here at etc if you have any questions or comments about the show please reach out to us at exitthecult at protonmail.com or visit exitthecult.com and as always be sure to check out the description for show notes and links to articles and videos featured in this episode have a killer weekend and don't be a killer Please help support the show by becoming an Exit the Cult member over on our Patreon page for exclusive content and bonus episodes. Visit ExitTheCult.com for details. Tune into new episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.